so that is the kind of wiring that sets us up to enter into these workplaces where we're go, 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 you know, and we're, and then we start to see problems emerge because you have this, this early wiring that set up the person to be disconnected from their own experience. And then it just piles on and it piles on and we're never coming out of it. Welcome to The Change, where we share stories and inspiration from business leaders and people making positive work-life changes. I'm your host, Adam Baru. Our focus today is on the nervous system, how we process information and events, and how we store trauma and stress in our bodies. We've all dealt with so much over the past two years, and the change we've had to undergo in our personal and professional lives is very clearly a traumatic event. For people that have either had COVID or witnessed a friend or loved one deal with COVID, the trauma is even further amplified. Adults have a system to manage and process these events, but for children, this experience and all they've had to go through with remote learning and the inability to simply just play with friends in a carefree way will certainly have lasting effects. Aside from the pandemic, the pressures we are faced with in the 21st century are more than our bodies and minds were designed to deal with. Our nervous system is shaped by the events of our childhood, and for some, the ability to regulate emotions is manageable and we process events and move on in a normal and healthy way. But for a large population of people, stressful nervous system responses are not able to flow through the nervous system and we maintain a state of stuckness, where the nervous system is unable to let go of these powerful emotions and we remain in an activated state. Research has shown that what we have traditionally defined as trauma can be even more subtle than we've realized. For example, working for several years in a highly activated, stressful environment can store as trauma within the nervous system. And when left unchecked, the buildup of these stress responses can ultimately lead to nervous system disorders, autoimmune issues, disease, and more. Here to tell us more about our nervous system and how it processes trauma for people both in their personal and professional lives is Seth Lyon, a nervous system specialist and trauma expert based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Seth, welcome to The Change. Hey, Adam. Thanks so much. So happy to be here. Yeah. And so I'd like to start with your background, if I may. Um, You've Mm -hmm. described yourself as having experienced a significant level of trauma in your childhood. Would you mind telling us first where you grew up and will you describe your childhood for us and the events that you went through in your early years? You betcha. Yeah. So, you know, in giving this account, it'll be interesting because some of the things that I went through would be commonly recognized as traumatic and -hmm. other things have been so normalized that they're not recognized as traumatic, uh, but they still are. So, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area Now, I was born six weeks premature Mm -hmm. um, and was put pretty rapidly into an incubator. Okay. So, you know, cut off from my mom and the family system and isolated. You know, again, pretty normal, but that's Mm -hmm. highly traumatic. Uh, That, you know, an infant needs secure attachment from the moment they emerge into the world uh, with the primary caregiver. So just that alone sets up the system to default to a survival response, which primarily the freeze response. And we can get more into why that happens. So that's yeah. just one example. Okay. You know, circumcision, 
Another thing that's been very normalized, highly traumatic, highly stressful for the system. Mm-hmm. You know, so I went through that. You know, these are just the formative, you know, very early experiences that okay. seem kind of normal, right? But then, you know, my parents split up when I was two, so there was that rupture in the family system, which added more to the levels of insecurity and you know, sense of things just not being safe mm-hmm. when mom and dad aren't liking each other and. You know, and that can get tricky because you don't really want parents who can't stand each other to stay together necessarily sure. either. But either way, it's a no win for the kid. Right. Um, so I grew up flip flopping between households, uh, you know, two weeks here, two weeks there, each with their own kind of survival stress environment. You know, my dad's house was much more tense, lots of anxiety, anger, you know, sort of walking on eggshells, never knowing when this sort of rage would erupt. Um, some, you know, not too much, but, you know, spankings, which again, okay. normalized, mm-hmm. but traumatic, you know, you are, uh, I have this ebook on my website. That's like a free download. And in there, there's a description that shows the process of how being spanked is perceived by a mammal, not by necessarily, you know, uh, a person who understands it. Uh, so at the nervous system level, even that can be very traumatic, especially if there's not repair. Um, Mm -hmm. so all of that. And then at my mom's house, the other house, it was more of a depressive environment. It was about sort of collapsing Mm. into freeze and numbness, soothing. Um, but there was all sorts of weird kind of emotional, uh, manipulative, guilty kind of things going on there. And that was sort of my existence until I was 18 was kind of flipping between this highly stressful, agitated, tense and collapse, guilt, freezy kind of thing. Okay. And then... My brother passed when I was 13 mm. uh, of cancer. So that was oh, another wow. wrench thrown in the system. My sister left the house when she was 18 in, this, in a big dramatic fight. So all sorts of family ruptures, death, and you know those types of things, which are more commonly recognized as traumatic. So, you know, and I just grew up in, you know, suburbia. It wasn't a war-torn country, you know, but I emerged with very complex PTSD um, as I went into college. And that's not something I would come to recognize for, you know, uh, about 15 years later, I yeah. think, is when I found the trauma work. So, yeah, it was it was all the upbringing that primed me to end up dealing the way I did, which was to basically leave the world when I was about 21. Mm-hmm. And I, I got really into meditation and essentially took off into the woods <laughs> oh, yeah. for about 15 years. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, we're going to get into that um, here in a bit. I want to ask, um, going back to your parents and growing up in in a split family like that, um, and um, I did as well. And uh, I'm curious, mm-hmm. um, were your parents, did they get along? Did they Not co-parent? Yeah, because that no, in itself no. can be yeah. very traumatic. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, your parents are like these fundamental archetypes for your psyche, among other things. And, you know, when they hate each other and don't communicate, that sets up a conflict within the self. Yeah. Um, you know, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, were, there was very little communication at all. And what communication there was, it was all, you know, uh, logistics and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, no, no closeness. Yeah. And, you know, for for me, I remember having a feeling of guilt, like if I spent Mm, too much time with one parent or showed, you know, a certain sense of, you know, 
being more at ease with one parent over the other it's like you know they would kind of play each other against each other through myself and my my two brothers that i grew up with so totally very yeah it's it's really you know those those experiences um they last a long time for children and it's hard to really recognize you know how deep those layers exist absolutely i mean they, they create very deep insecurities um and often a, a very intense need for approval and, and recognition, which can be really destructive and toxic. And, and that's sort of the psyche, the stuff that happens in the psyche, the stuff and the stuff that's happening in the nervous system, you know, is even more profound, which is being in these different survival states, whether it be highly activated and kind of fight flight mode and anxious and nervous and your tummy hurts or mm-hmm. collapsed and kind of depressed and numb more and freeze. And, you know, what, what often happens is what I learn to do, which is kind of flip between these. And, you know, the, the human is incredibly adaptive. We're, we're very resilient. Mm-hmm. So we learn how to manage these stress responses. I mean, we don't know what's happening because we're not educated about this stuff. Right. But we sort of instinctively adapt and learn how to keep it kind of boxed up and managed. And that's where often addictions come in and different mm-hmm. weird behavioral things need to isolate or be alone. These are all ways to manage what's happening inside of us physiologically. Very so true. I had my own sort of cocktail of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So eventually you went on to um, college at Eastern Washington university, graduating, right. I believe in 1996 with a BA in music composition and percussion. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us what your college experience was like? Well, it was pretty great actually. I mean, I, I was still innocent really. Um, you know, I, I smoked a lot of pot, you know, I, mm-hmm. I stayed pretty stoned through most of college and also, you know, I, so I had my various coping strategies, but I was doing what I loved. You know, I, I went into music composition. I had, I had really no desire to try to get any kind of practical degree or anything. I just wanted to do what my passion was. And I went to a college that was very different than my upbringing in the Bay area. I went to this tiny little town in Eastern Washington, Cheney, mm-hmm. little farm town, you know, had four seasons. It was just, I kind of created an environment for myself that was opposite of what I had grown up in. And that was really, really helpful. Um, As far as I knew, I was relatively happy throughout college, you know, I had a good group of friends doing what I loved. So, so it was, it was a good time. And what did that, I mean, what was that experience like for you? I mean, kind of coming out of this, you know, growing up with parents that uh, Mm. didn't, you know, at least create a harmonious environment for you and your sister. Um, what was that like when you were first on your own out, out there in Washington? Oh my God. Well, it was like, you know, freedom, you know, <laughs> like I remember driving away from the Bay area, drove in, driving up to Washington and just the elation. It was like a euphoria mm-hmm. of just escape, you know, like I got out, I'm yeah. finally out Yeah, was the feeling. And I think that lasted, you know, throughout, I, I didn't go home hardly at all. I went home the first summer but after that, I never went back, um, really. And uh, yeah, it was it was great. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like I experienced the same thing. I uh, I coming out of high school, I went to school in Santa Barbara and I, I rarely ever went home. I kind of built this life in Santa Barbara, whereas, you know, most of my friends yeah. went home every summer. I always tried to make it yeah. work and it just I had my own life. Like, you know, exactly. as soon as I was out on my own, I was on my own, you know, totally. Yep. Same. Yeah. So what were your plans after college? I read that you had envisioned a career in film composition, I believe. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That was my thought. I was, of course, naive um, and not really understanding what that would involve. 
Um, so I thought, yeah, maybe after college I'll, I'll figure out a way to compose for film. But you know, what I really quickly realized was, well, that would mean moving to LA mm. or New York. Uh, and which was terrifying mm-hmm. <laughs> to me. That's not where I wanted to go at all. I wanted to go in the opposite direction. And, and that's what I did. I, instead of pursuing any sort of career, I just moved to Bozeman, Montana, which is where my best friend had moved. And he was finishing his college there. And I had another buddy who shortly moved out after and had a great year of just post-college hanging out in Montana, mm-hmm. um, just having a great time, you know, got a job at a restaurant, just working, you know, and, uh, that, and I stayed in the restaurant industry basically then for the next 20 years when I did work at it, you know, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, in terms of a career in music, I never, you know, I sort of realized, well, that's not going to happen. You okay. know, I, I don't, I, I don't want to move to these places where I would have to be. So I just started recording music for myself and started writing songs um, mm-hmm. before too long, started getting interested in instrumental music and music for sound healing. That was a little bit yeah. later, but yeah, I, I eventually, you know, I, I basically turned my creative process into my own outlet, my own thing, instead of, you know, creating big musical scores. You yeah. Know? So, I see that you have yeah. a drum kit behind you. So you're, you're still yeah. actively uh, creating. You bet. Yeah. Oh yeah. Still making music. Oh yeah. All the time. Yeah. We're, we're also going to discuss that um, here in a bit, but uh, um, I want to shift gears a little bit. So you had a transformative experience while mm-hmm. on a 10 day meditation retreat. Can you share yeah. with us when this occurred and what mm. led you to participate in this retreat in the first place? Yeah. So I, I had found this place called Brighton Bush Hot Springs. My sister was working there when I was 18 and I, on my way to college, I stopped by and visited her. I was like, wow, this is all right. You know, and mm-hmm. it was my first experience with the counterculture, you know, clothing, optional bathing areas, Okay. you know, being comfortable, just getting naked in hot water with other people. Like that was a new experience. Mm-hmm. And that was when I was 18. So it sort of planted this seed, I think, of like, oh, there's this whole other kind of lifestyle out there. And after I'd been in Montana for a year, I said to my buddy, like, hey, you know, why don't we go work at the hot springs this summer? Um, So we both drove there and and interviewed and, and ended up getting jobs. And it was there that I started to, you know, meet people who did things like meditation yeah. and yoga and all these different practices. And I got intrigued. Um, there's this one woman in particular who talked about Vipassana and how amazing it had been for her. So it was about hmm, a year later when I was actually at a really low point in my life. I, I was at Brighton Bush again mm-hmm. and I had gone through this really painful breakup, um, just really feeling depressed. And I realized, you know what, I maybe I should do this, this Vipassana thing and mm-hmm. just, you know, sit with myself and, and see what this is all about. And so I entered it really kind of out of suffering and did the 10 days. And yeah, it was incredibly transformative. Um, You know, people talk about having spiritual awakenings and that's what happened for me. I mean, I I had memories of past lives just come. Wasn't something I'd ever considered before or even Mm -hmm. thought about. Like I wasn't really a spiritual person too much at that point. Um, I just had these memories flooding me of being in these big halls, sitting, doing this practice with all these monks around me. And I was like, oh, wow, I've done this before. Um, and it came very easily to me, the practice. So I, that's, that's what really shifted my life in a big way where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to pursue this. I'm going to drop out of society. I you know, bought a one-way ticket to Hawaii shortly after that mm-hmm. and 
with the goal of just meditating. I'm just going to meditate. I'm going to sit in nature. I'm going to you know, not worry about money. I'm just going to see where spirit guides me. It's sort of a classic spiritual quest, letting go of all material goods, had no money, was homeless, just you know, cruised around, camping okay. here and there. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was very much the sort of nomadic monk kind of lifestyle. Yeah, and um, so you shared with me that after this revelation, you kind of lost interest in the mainstream world and kind of yeah. opted to essentially drop out of society um, to better mm-hmm. study the mind-body world, the old, in your words, the old-fashioned way through self-immersion. So tell That's us right. about this next chapter of your life. So it was a lot of exploration, different learnings. Like, you know, I would meet someone, they'd be practicing some kind of energy work or breath work or something, and I'd say, oh, what's that all about? And I would learn from them and I would, you know, I would learn about, I was getting into the Hawaiian traditions and mythology. Uh, we're learning about, you know, the energies of the land, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the nature spirits, the energy of Mama Pele. I, it was all about zoning into different ways of exploring consciousness and energy. And during that time, I also met my first wife and we had my, uh, our son, uh, who is now a young adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, here's what I didn't know, and this is really significant, is that all the trauma was still sitting in me basically untouched. Mm-hmm. Because this is a very important point. There's many practices that can be very helpful with dealing with trauma. But if you don't know that you have trauma, and if you don't understand where it fundamentally lives and how to work with it, and how it moves and hides mm-hmm. in the system... Yeah. What happens with spiritual practices is very often they end up reinforcing the ability to bypass the trauma, oh, what we call spiritual bypass, Okay. although it's really a somatic bypass. You're bypassing your body. And that's what happened for me, and I didn't know it. It's like you don't you, know, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. So I thought that I was becoming enlightened, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, having these huge expansive experiences and connecting to God, and, and all of which was valid. But I was doing it at the expense of missing a whole lot of myself. Then I didn't know that I was doing that. So it was a very interesting time, sort of the next 13 years, in that I developed all sorts of really helpful tools and sort of spiritual abilities and ways to work with energy, but also kind of reinforced my freeze and the way that I was avoiding what was really happening deeper in the system. Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, you've described for me that through your own healing journey, you came to a deep understanding of how trauma expresses itself through disease and other illnesses. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, what was this discovery like for you in, in relation to your own trauma? It started with it started with really getting into emotional movement. Um, I started to develop like like, okay, I can feel this thing in my body. Right. And I can feel the sensation and I can track it. But what happens if instead of just observing it, like in the Vipassana way, I, I go in there and I, I feel into it and I sort of vibrate it. What happens if I let it express through sound mm. or on my face through affect or, or through bodily movement? Um, and I started to discover that, yeah, the, tr- the body holds these emotions 
and they can be uncovered. Um, this was, you know, maybe a little bit later on okay. when I started to get more into this kind of aspect of it, sort of starting to hone in on the trauma. You know, I, I didn't fully understand it until I met my my current wife, Irene Lyon, mm-hmm. who had just finished a training in somatic experiencing, which yeah. is the one of the forms of trauma work we do when I met her. Um, so she's the one that really like, ah, that's what I've been doing. Yeah. You know, and this is what I've been missing. Um, you know, meeting her was was incredibly important. Um so, you know, it started with my own instinctual kind of noodling around within my own system, but I didn't really get it until I discovered the trauma work and somatic experiencing okay. and did the training for myself. Yeah, I think you've kind of described it a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit more specifically what somatic experiencing is um, and then sure. talk about the work that you and Irene do today? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so somatic experiencing is a form of work developed by Peter Levine. He developed it in the mostly in the 70s, early 80s, uh, when he started training people. And then it got further refined over the next couple decades. Uh, essentially, he asked the question, he was a biologist mm-hmm. and all, interested in all sorts of other things about human physiology, psychology. I mean, he's, he was a very curious man, you know, mm-hmm. very into okay. consciousness also, right? He asked the question, how come animals in the wild don't become traumatized? You know, they're faced on a, you know, especially many species are faced daily with threat, mortal threat, you know, being chased, hunted, getting away, you know, and, but they don't get PTSD. Like they seem to have this resiliency, you know, what's up with that? And he, he started to realize like, well, they're, they're completing their survival responses. Like in the wild, you get chased by, you know, a predator, either you get away and you're successful or you get eaten. Right. There, there really is no middle ground. It's very clear. And so he realized that, well, you know, we share the same autonomic nervous system as all of those animals. What's happening with us that our survival energy isn't completing? Because that's what he realized. You know, the very, he started to realize that the various things that we classify as mental or, emo- or emotional problems are essentially manifestations of an incomplete survival response mm-hmm. where our system is still trying to fight or run away or still trying to hide and shut down and freeze and numb. And he realized that by creating the right conditions that the human being has an innate capacity to heal these things, to naturally release these survival charges. But that, and so that's a sort of a simple way of saying it, but then the nuances and how do we create those conditions for each unique individual? Because everybody needs something slightly different in terms of how do they get to that place where that natural healing can occur. Yeah. And, and that's really the intricacy and the beauty of the work. So, yeah, I started the training shortly after I met my wife and moved to Canada. And it's a three-year training. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started my practice about mm, maybe in the second year of my training. Okay. And I was also doing sound healing at that point. I had been doing sound healing for probably a dozen years, you know, using different kinds of, you know, Tibetan bowls, crystal bowls, gongs and drums and shakers, all that sort of shamanic tradition stuff. Yep. So when I started my practice, it was sound healing with an understanding of trauma and the nervous system. And then as I completed the somatic experiencing training and did more trainings with other modalities, 
my practice slowly shifted to just doing trauma work. Though I still use sound um, as part of the, my practice, it's the it's the it's a tiny part of it. It's mm-hmm. almost pretty much exclusively nervous system based trauma work now, which is what my wife also does. But we we do it in different ways. Yeah. So in preparing for this episode, you directed me to Irene's website and specifically her three part healing trauma mm-hmm. video series, which um, absolutely resonated with me. And I was very affected by the information I learned in this series. It was very well done. I've had anxiety issues since as long as I can remember, but specifically since I was 16, I've had this facial nervous tick, um, Mm kind of comes and goes, but it's, I mean, since it's perpetually been around since I was 16, it it is a chronic condition and it seems to morph and change over time. I remember it kind of manifested when I was 16, like more like a nasal thing and then became Mm -hmm. like an eye thing. And then it kind of became like a breath mouth thing. And my grandfather had a similar thing, a condition that he had a tick. It wasn't manifesting in, in that particular way, like for me, but, and I also understand other people in my family have, have had this happen. So for the longest time, I thought there was some genetic cause for this. Mm, I've never mm. been able to, I've never been able to will it away. Like as much as I kind of try to get, you know, just go away, like don't do this. Like it doesn't work, but the closest I've been able to control it is by doing this nervous system work that you and Irene have described. Um, Mm. I've I've noticed it in particular when I am balanced, the tick just kind of naturally fades away. That's right. But it resurfaces when life just gets hectic again. So the big takeaway from watching Irene's video series is how years of trauma have built up in my nervous system such that I always feel like I kind of live in a dysregulated nervous system state. So can you describe for us the processes in the nervous system, the fight, the flight, mm-hmm. the freeze processes, yep. and how stored up activation manifests in ticks or otherwise. Yeah, you bet. So, you know, we all have this nervous system that has the, you have your central nervous system, you know, your brain, your spinal cord, you have your peripheral nervous system, which is the autonomic nervous system. And also, you know, sensory motor cortex, the, 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 when you make basic movements to pick stuff up, that kind of thing. Um, the autonomic nervous system is really where the trauma happens fundamentally mm-hmm. because the autonomic nervous system is what governs the fight, flight, and freeze responses. Okay. And those are what we call our survival responses. So they're only supposed to kick in, like fight, flight is the first thing that kicks in. And that's only supposed to happen when you're under mortal threat. Like when there's something that's really dangerous. Oh, not if you're late on, on a report. Yeah, no, yeah, not because you're late to work or because you have a stressful deadline or right, because you had a fight mm-hmm. with your, you know, spouse right. or whatever, you know, because of traffic. And that's the thing. In our industrialized world, there are so many things that the system can perceive as a survival threat and it will mount this mount this response. Yeah. Um, especially because we're predisposed to that from our upbringing. And we'll have to get into that later about how, you know, industrialized society predisposes the system to mount these survival responses. So, you know, as we go through our day encountering stressors, not really understanding what's happening inside of us, these survival responses get activated. And because we don't know what's happening inside of us and how to work with it for the most part, they just keep happening. Yeah, They just stay stuck in the system. So for a really clear way to describe this, if you think of, again, we go to the wild. So uh, a gazelle, you know, she's in the meadow, she's grazing. 
here's a twig snap. So the first thing that happens is a defensive orienting response, mm -hmm. where the head will lift and move towards the source of the possible threat. And then there's an assessment. Okay, I did my defensive orienting. What is over there? Oh, it's just the wind. Okay, I go back to grazing. And then there's this natural rise and fall, a little peak, and yeah. then it falls, right? But, oh no, there's a tiger over there. So then, okay, then that mounts into a full fight-flight response. We the run, and then they, you know, they get away, and they get to a safe place. And what happens is that that animal will then tremble and shake, and the survival energy of that fight-flight response will naturally dissipate out of the nervous system. And then they just go back to their day. It's all good. So that's not what happens with us, for the most part. For one, even if we knew that we needed to allow ourselves to kind of shake and tremble, or maybe have some emotions come out because we're human beings and we have emotions that are part of these survival responses, there's all these societal conditions. Like, that's not okay. You know, how many people are told at a young age, like, oh, you know, you're, you're a big boy, don't cry, you're not hurt, you're okay. All of these messages that we get growing up and through you know our family, through society, through teachers, to you know manage yourself, you're okay, don't feel that, you know, don't cry, mm -hmm. don't show emotion, don't show vulnerability. Right. All of that keeps these survival responses and the associated emotions locked up in the system. And that's an important thing to recognize. It's when in your intro you were talking about how you know, the emotions get stuck. That's just part of it. The, it's it's the survival energy that gets stuck and the emotions are a component of that right although not always sometimes there are no emotions and it's just energy um, so that's that's a simple kind of fight flight scenario um, what can happen though let's go back to the wild say that gazelle gets take you know tackled by the lion mm -hmm. what's going to happen then is it's going to go into freeze because if fight and flight are not successful that's what the mammalian system defaults to is freeze where okay we're going to numb the body mm -hmm. we're going to bring all the blood to the core to protect the organs we're going to reduce circulation breathing is going to get very shallow and we're going to prepare for death that's what the freeze response is for mm -hmm. so if that animal say that lion gets distracted by a pack of hyenas or something coming to steal its gazelle mm -hmm. the gazelle will leap up out of that freeze response back into fight flight and escape and again go through the discharge however coming back again okay say we're that i'm that kid growing up you know in my dad's house yeah where i'm feeling on edge i'm in the fight flight kind of mode i can't get away right i need the attachment i need the shelter i need the food i need the clothing um you know say i'm getting spanked i can't get away i can't win so what does my system do it's going to do the same thing it's going to start to default to freeze it's going to start to numb out to the environment and this is what happens in the majority of people who grow up in industrialized society in small ways or large is because of the inherent stressors in our society mm -hmm. we learn very often to numb out and recruit the freeze response in this very clever way that it was not intended for yeah and so that's, that tends to be what happens as we go through our life in this world. And we're encountered with these stressors, big and small, is they kind of stack up. And we have this charge in us very often, which is the anxiety or the tension, the fear, the worry, yeah. uh, muscle tension, chronic pain. Or we have this numbness or this collapse, this lethargy, this depression. 
You know, if you think about the thoughts associated with depression, it's hopeless. There's no point. Well, yeah, yeah. that's the thought of a system that's essentially preparing for death at a physiological level. So, you know, all of that can get wrapped up and there can be both. There can be, you know, if we look at bipolar, well, what is that? There's a system flipping between extreme activation and extreme shutdown. That's fight, flight, mm -hmm. and freeze, yeah. back and forth. Or they can be wrapped up together in various complex manifestations, which is where you get autoimmune disorders. Mm -hmm. Because the autonomic system that's governing these, these survival responses also governs our heart rate, our breath, our digestion, our immune response, endocrine function. All of that stuff gets thrown out of whack when we've got these survival energies running under the surface. Yeah. Um, how does that relate to vasovagal syncope, which is something that mm -hmm. my wife and, and other members of her family deal with um, to the extent mm. where when they do pass out, they, they also seizure. So, you know, I feel uh -huh. like it's, it's also the same manifestation of these, yep. like probably the freeze response, just like mm -hmm. taking over. Yeah, that's a classic example. Vasovagal syncope is when basically it often happens when you stand up suddenly, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and, and or you get a sudden spike of of like sympathetic activation essentially, and then that freeze lid, bam, comes on so hard that you pass out. Right, and that is a system that's learned to default to freeze under stress, and it's a very extreme manifestation of it. And then there's the collapse. And the passing out, and then if there's a seizure, well, okay, so that could be viewed as, yeah, there's that sympathetic activation underneath. Now that the system is unconscious and not defended, Ooh, there's that energy moving through. Mm, interesting. So what happens when we let this stress go untreated? How does traumatic stress get trapped in our bodies and affect our healing systems? Mm -hmm. So fundamentally, it's in the nervous system. And if we think about, you know, we don't really have a quote-unquote scientific way to describe life energy and cultures for millennium have had different names for it life energy chi prana the the stuff of life mm -hmm. the electricity that is within us because we are fundamentally electrical beings mm -hmm. and you can take away some various limbs and muscles and bones and even some organs and you'll still be living you take the electricity out of a human there's nothing there yeah so you know we are fundamentally electrical that's what's running our nervous system. And we only have so much, right? So when we have a portion of our life force, our electricity, whatever you want to call it, devoted to maintaining these survival responses, there's less energy for the rest of the stuff that it's supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So you have direct manifestations like anxiety. Anxiety is just a fight flight response, a sympathetic response that's buzzing away in the system underneath and mm -hmm. it creates the sense of unease like something's wrong like yeah my nervous system is sensing a life threat something is wrong that's anxiety yeah. right so there are direct representations like that or depression like the system is being dominated by freeze it's preparing to die so life feels hopeless and i'm collapsed and there's i'm numb i'm you know i have poor circulation all of these things are about an embedded freeze response mm -hmm. those are direct manifestations and then there's the indirect manifestations that happen more because of the stuff that's not getting done. So, you know, when you don't have the energy for the proper barrier keeping in the gut, when you don't have access to what we call the low tone dorsal vagal state, which is the rest digest state, mm -hmm. because your system is being dominated by freeze, which is a high tone dorsal vagal state, mm -hmm. well, then you don't have access to repairing sleep and proper immune function and barrier keeping in the gut. And then you start getting things like Crohn's right. and IBS. You start getting autoimmune disorders when you have contrary instructions being 
fired under the surface, like, you know, run away, freeze, run away, freeze. That creates this cross wiring that shows yeah. up in all these more complex ways as the system goes on carrying these things. And then there's things like chronic tension. You know, one of the things that we see a lot in this work is what's called incomplete survival response or incomplete self-protective response, which is literally like a way that the body wanted to move to protect itself, but couldn't. So this is where we get into ticks. Yeah. Very often what ticks are is it's a stuck shock. Like we saw something that was really horrific mm. or, you know, say there was a, we got hit in the head by a baseball that we saw coming at the last minute, but we didn't have time to turn and block it or get out of the way. There can be these instructions in the system still that are saying, turn, get out of the way. And so, like, right? Yeah. That can look like this sort of jerky movement or tick. This can also manifest as chronic tension. So, for example, you know, frozen shoulder. My wife had a client once who had really severe frozen shoulder. And no one can figure it out. You know, they're looking at the mechanics of it all and like, well, everything seems to be okay. It wasn't because of anything really in terms of structure or anatomy, it was because she had been horrifically abused and tied up as a child and couldn't escape. And her body was still trying to escape these bonds. Yeah, And so there was this tension pattern in the shoulder where it's like, I can't get away. So we see all sorts of manifestations like that. Um, also chronic fascial tension. Uh, fascia is something that is meant to be very slippery and sliding and fluid. It's this connective tissue and allows things to be protected and move, but it can also become very rigid when it senses threat. Mm -hmm. And so there can be a lot of very deep tension patterns in the body that are rooted in the fascia. So that's like fibromyalgia, things that chronic pain, okay. uh, things like that, mysterious pains that move around the body. That's often connected to tension in the fascia. So all of these are representations of these stuck survival responses. Yeah, I mean, something I've talked about on this podcast and, and other podcasts is um, some anxiety panic attacks that I was having um, mm -hmm. last year that fortunately, you know, are, are really few and far between now. Now that I kind of made the connection, I don't know why it took me so long to make the connection. But uh, back, you know, my trauma when I was about you know, six years old is, you know, we had a babysitter, um, as my parents first split up, my mom would go out, she'd have a babysitter come over. It was this teenage kid and he would immediately, you know, lock myself and my brothers in my mom's closet, shut out the light and lock the door. And, and I remember just this state of terror. And so then I was yeah. getting now as a 48 year old, these claustrophobic panic attacks where, I'd go have a meeting with a client in a very large conference room where it was just myself and mm. him, yeah. but there were no windows and I'd Ugh. sweat and I'd be like, I, I got to turn on the air. I got to get out of here. You know, it's just yeah. a terrible yep. feeling. And it just, uh, it reminds me of um, a saying that I've heard uh, repeated, which is our issues are in our tissues. Yes, and indeed. I think there's a lot of science behind this. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. I, I practice yoga mm. often. And, you know, for example, when we do hip openers, um, mm -hmm. I've had yoga instructors say, you know, just, you know, you may feel a, a large uh, sense of emotion after doing these hip openers. So, you know, be aware of that. And I remember one time in particular, I wasn't doing yoga. I went and had a massage done, but the, the massage therapist was like pinning my leg back almost, you know, to my ear, really opening mm. up my hips. And about an hour later, uh, my wife and I had done like this massage. And so an hour later we went and we're just sitting in a restaurant having lunch. And 
I, I remember having a conversation with her and I just started crying. Yeah. It was like everything yeah. was just, you know, all that te- emotion that was built up in my tissues, you know, just seemed to have been mm-hmm. released into emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we we view various containers of the body as well, various places. Sorry, we, we view various places in the body as containers. So what we call them diaphragms. Uh, this is the same in osteopathic work. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah, the, the hips are a dia- the, the pelvic bowl is a diaphragm, uh, the actual breathing diaphragm itself, the tops of the lungs kind of form another chamber. These are all areas where the body holds emotion. Okay. I'm not sure if we have the technology at this point to point to that like in a scientific way, but we certainly know that it happens. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure exactly how, but it's very clear. Um, <laughs> at this yeah. point through all Is that the something like where evidence. when you feel like you can't get a deep breath sometimes mm-hmm. and you're in like yeah. an anxious state yeah well and that and that's directly physiological because you know the fight flight response it wants you to be you know breathing fast right it's 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 set up you're set up to run or fight right um or shock right in shock the diaphragm can be quite stuck like <gasps> right this sort of gasp if there's shock stuck in the system so that can actually be directly physiological mm. where the, the respiratory diaphragm isn't moving properly yeah and that's directly related absolutely yeah so you've shared with me that trauma is the most misunderstood ignored and most powerful cause of human suffering and that it's far more widespread than most people know and your wife in her video series described how we are in a healing revolution actually right now. And mm-hmm. it's a unique time in history where people are starting to recognize that trauma is more widely experienced um, that, and most of us deal with it. So why do you think it's taken so long to get here? And what do you think it is about this time in history that is really enabling this healing revolution? Well, in terms of what's taken so long to get here, I think a lot of it has to do with just evolution of understanding of the human system in general. Um, But there's a lot of resistance as well to really understanding this, and that can come in many forms. You know, when someone does this trauma work and they really unpack what's in their system, it's not a little deal. It is a complete reshaping of the entire person. Because what we view as our personality almost always was formed in response to trauma. Mm. When we take trauma out of the picture, we often don't know who we are. There is a loss of identity in a certain way because all the ways in which we maybe used to cope or understand ourselves have the ground's been pulled out from underneath that. And that is instinctively scary. So a lot of people, when you start talking about this stuff, um, they will just talking about it, they, they will get uncomfortable. Yeah. They will start to feel physiologically uncomfortable because their unconscious knows this is pertinent to me. And if I go down this path, I'm not maybe not going to know who I am anymore. And I'm going to I, I you know I have no idea what's happening inside me. And that's there's a reason we block this stuff away in the first place, because it's freaking scary. Yeah. I mean, it's not easy work. When you when you do this work, it means coming into contact with all the stuff that was too scary in the first place to deal with. Now, the way that we do the work, we build it in such a way that a person can do this. We give them the education first, which is incredibly important. And that way a person can understand like, oh, I'm not crazy. This is happening because of this. It makes sense. And that provides a certain level of safety. And we, you know, help people get into the body gradually 
And the foundation of the work is safety. It has to be this sort of context of safe attunement and connection, which someone can also provide for themselves. But even given all that, it's tough. You have to come in contact with these intense survival energies. The only way to let them out of the building is to feel them on the way out. Mm -hmm. And that means feeling all those emotions too. So I think, you know, in terms of why it's taken so long, well, one, yeah, just evolution and understanding, but also because of the intensity and the amount of transformation that healing this stuff requires of the individual and not just the individual. And I'd go as far as to say that our entire society is dependent on people being in survival mode. You know, if everyone was taking care of themselves and doing the work to regulate their nervous system, there'd be no more society. Like people, you know, running on the on the treadmill of the work and the marketplace, go, 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 go. Yeah. Our current society basically depends on that. Yeah. So, you know, that might have something to do with it kind of taking a while for the word to get out as well. Interesting. So I want to share a quote also from um, Irene in the video series. I, I think it was really profound um, when I really kind of honed in on it, which is trauma is not in the event Trauma is in the inability of the nervous system to function optimally and heal. So on the surface, it's it's kind of like a simple statement, but I think yeah. it conveys why we get stuck and are unable to fully heal. Um, you know, when we've experienced a specific traumatic event, we become focused on the event itself. And, and that right. is something we can't change. You cannot go back in time and change that event. And so when we when I hear when I hear that quote, and I, you separate now the, the actual trauma that it is not the event. It's just how right. our, our nervous system is kind of holding on to that. Um, it does give us a path to healing. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we say it's in the, it's in the biology, not the biography. Yeah. Yeah. And it, that's one you know, reason also why lots of, you know, there, there's all sorts of therapies and many can be useful for many things. But talk therapy will never resolve trauma. Because you're trying to understand yourself and maybe, you know, you understand your mind and you understand the events and the relationships and they can bring a certain level of healing. But if you don't include the nervous system and the physiology, all that it's connected to, then you're not going to get to the trauma. Yeah. Because that's just, that's fundamentally where it is. It's in what's happening now, not what happened then. Right. It's what's happening now in your body. And, and it gives us, now we actually have control. We are in control of, of the healing process. Um, we are not, That's right. we do not continue to be tied to the event. That's right. And, and yeah, we, we encourage people actually like, you know, we, we kind of steer in sessions. I'll, you know, I'll listen to a person's story and that's part of building connection and safety. But we're not going to hang out there. Yeah. You know, I, I will redirect the person like, oh, yeah, I, I want to hear your story. I want to hear what happened to you. Okay. And now can you notice, like, you notice what's happening with your breathing right now? Like mm -hmm. how it's kind of, you know. So we'll always redirect back to the body and what's happening there now. Because that is where the trauma is. back, Seth will share how we can continue our nervous system healing within our work and professional lives. Stay with us. I'm Adam Baru, and you're listening to The Change from EIQ Media.
Check out our newest podcast, How I Made It Through, now available from EIQ Media and hosted by Kristen Taylor. Have you ever faced something so jarring, so overwhelming, and seemingly so hopeless that all you thought was, how will I ever get through this? Hi, this is Kristen Taylor, host of How I Made It Through, my new podcast that shares stories of ordinary people who've navigated some not-so-ordinary circumstances. When life throws heavy blows, we only truly make it through when we are truly willing to go through all of it, feeling it, and being transformed by it. The stories shared will enthrall and inspire you. They may even provide the roadmap you've been searching for. Back to the change. I'm Adam Baru. We were discussing how trauma is not in the event itself, but rather in our inability of the nervous system to function optimally and heal. Often, carrying this healing into our professional lives can be a considerable challenge. So I want to switch gears in entirely here for a bit and focus on how all of what we've discussed impacts us in the workplace. I talk quite a bit on the show about my other career, which is leading a consulting agency and how the consulting industry in general is such a prime environment for burnout, anxiety, and stress. In Irene's video series, she says how trauma is sometimes not based on a singular event, but the repeated and chronic activation of the nervous system. And when I, when I heard her say that, I immediately recognized how true this is. I mean, while I experienced traumatic events in my childhood, I think my issues with chronic stress and anxiety have more profoundly been the result of living every day in a heightened, dysregulated state. So what's at play within the nervous system here? Mm-hmm. To really explain that, we got to rewind a bit to, to, to early life. Because here's the thing. A human being who has good regulation and solid attachment early on, proper attunement with their parents, sec- real security and safety, they will have a lot more resiliency to deal with day-to-day stressors, Mm -hmm. deadlines, that kind of stuff. Um, Often, also, they will end up in a job that is more in alignment with their actual purpose and true sort of self. Interesting. Um, So it may not even be as stressful, but Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not going to get out of experiencing stress. Like that is part of life. So if you're set up for it, if you're set up to succeed, you can very often handle that without trauma. But what the thing is, is most of us are not set up to succeed. And that is because of the reality of the existing society very often. So even if, you know, a a baby has parents that love them and they're not abusive, you know, that it's it's not a mean household. The parents like each other, but they're always busy. Mm -hmm. They're always go, go, go. Yeah. Baby gets put into daycare at three months. Boom. There it is. You got early developmental trauma. Because, and that's because of what the nervous system requires. We don't come in fully cooked, so to speak. Yeah. We have this system called the ventral vagal system. 
The ventral vagal system is what enables us to find safety and connection with humans. And that is something that is not myelinated at birth. This is from the work of Stephen Porges in the polyvagal theory. When we come in, this ventral vagal system, it gets myelinated and tuned through the process of connection with the primary caregiver. And that takes about three years to really set it up solidly. Okay. Where mom is not stressed, or if it's dad, dad is not stressed. There needs to be at least one. One parent can be working like crazy, but there needs to be one that is not. And their primary job is connection and building that security and that safety. Like if you think about a mom with a baby nursing and the way they're looking at each other Mm -hmm. and how the baby will make a facial expression and the mama will sort of copy it and oh, and and that's how a human being learns to find safety and connection with another human being, to read facial cues, to uh, get regulation and like having the system calm and soothe through social connection. Most of us didn't really get that enough. Mm-hmm. Most of us had parents that were really stressed and go, go, go. So what happens is a tendency for that little human system to, again, start to use that freeze response in a clever way. It kind of senses physiologically, I- I'm not getting what I need to develop properly. And that is interpreted as a survival threat. Mm. I'm, you know, and it's, it's subtle, but it's still there. And that ends up with what we call functional freeze. And this is probably the the most common representation of unresolved trauma that we see where there isn't any obvious big symptoms. There isn't a lot of anxiety or depression necessarily. No big problems. We're just a little numbed out. We're maybe a little checked out. Or maybe we have the ability actually to perform at a really high level as an athlete, as a CEO, as a businessman. Because we're not fully feeling ourselves, because we're not fully feeling our emotions and the impact that our environment and workplace is having on us. So that is the kind of wiring that sets us up to enter into these workplaces where we're go, 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 you know, and we're and then we start to see problems emerge because you have this this early wiring that set up the person to be disconnected from their own experience. And then it just piles on and it piles on. And we're never coming out of it. So what's happening there in terms of you ask, like what's happening in the nervous system? Well, there's a functional freeze that enables a person to manage. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that or underneath it, there is this slow accumulation of chronic stress where the human system is not coming down. You know, like we learn to have a drink at the end of the day or, you know, maybe even a yoga class can be a form of management for this kind of activation. Even things that are good for us can be a way of managing it. Like we learn how to manage it, but we don't learn how to come out of it. Right. So that's what's going on is this kind of freeze, functional freeze, and then chronic activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is this go, 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 stay adrenalized, achieve, you know, get the coffee throughout the day, all of that stuff. Right. And then the crash at the end of the day. I heard you speaking on this very subject on Jessa Reed's podcast, and you made this statement about the functional freeze, and you were describing um, CEOs, high-functioning mm-hmm. CEOs, athletes that kind of live in this functional freeze state, and I, I resonate with that 100%. I think I, that's the world I've been kind of living in. I, I've noticed yeah. I've had the ability to to take a lot more on mm-hmm. that most people mm-hmm. I, I've just seen around me, are they, they're not able to take that on, right? And I don't yeah. think it's a good thing. Um, It's ultimately not, because what happens eventually 
I mean, there's some people who will stay in that and, until they get old and die. And they just, you know, they'll have health problems. They'll have maybe autoimmune conditions, but they'll manage it with medication, you know, and, and they'll sort of get through, you know. But very often what we see happen is that someone who's been operating in this mode, achieving at a very high level, will have some event, um, a breakup, a car accident, um, a some pand- kind a of significant... Yeah, a pandemic, a global pandemic, maybe. That's what happened um, for me, you know, yeah. Some kind of big event that just, it's the last straw. The system can't take it anymore. And there's a big blow up. And uh, and it, 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 what happens is a, a collapse, some sort of massive illness, you know, um, some kind of thing where they just stop functioning at the same level physiologically. Uh, an illness takes over, a nervous breakdown all of a sudden there's debilitating anxiety or social anxiety, stuff that was never a problem, all of a sudden is overwhelming the system. Um, right. And that's what we see a lot. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think most of us can share experiences, um, kind of switching gears a little bit, uh, about being in kind of like a crappy job or working for a difficult boss. Um, when we take our, our own healing, we have the choice to, to leave that situation or we can, we can let the worry and the anxiety take over or we can become numb to it, right? Uh, yeah. I'd like to quote from one of the articles I read on your your blog site um, that made me reflect on how perhaps these challenging situations are actually opportunities for growth and healing, they're invitations mm-hmm. for growth and healing. By keeping up our practice in such non-ideal situations, we can expand our capacity and enable even deeper healing. So describe for us, if you will, how a simple change in perspective can show us that difficult mm-hmm. situations can be an invitation for healing. Absolutely. So once a person steps into this work and they start to learn about what's happening in their physiology and they start to get a little bit of a handle on it, they start to learn like, oh, I'm in total sympathetic activation right now. I need to go away for a moment and orient to my surroundings and let my parasympathetic come more online. And they, once they start to understand how to work with their nervous system, then stressors can become what they're supposed to be, which are opportunities for growth. Um, you know, that's, that's really what we call positive stress, where, you know, it's, it's something that pushes the system, but we have the ability, the ability to genuinely meet it, mm-hmm. not sort of manage ourselves in the situation such that we kind of pack it up and muscle through with willpower. We actually... We feel the activation, but we are aware of what's happening. We stay present. We stay embodied. And that every time we do that, that actually increases the capacity for future stress. But it does take a while to get there. There can also there can often be a collapse and a deconstruction mm-hmm. of the self that comes before that's possible. Right. And that's important to understand. Yeah. I have an episode focused on leading with compassion. Um, can you describe why it's more important than ever, um, given everything that we've spoken about today, why why more managers that practice empathetic leadership, um, you know, is really going to be the key for mm-hmm. allowing people to, to grow and build that capacity? Absolutely. I mean, I think that it is possible to transform our society. I think that is what's happening. Um, there is this... Like you said earlier, we're, we're in a time of transformation now where we're learning more and more about the human system and what it really needs. And I think it is possible to create a workplace where those needs are met, but it requires that the CEOs, the bosses, 
that they understand this stuff mm-hmm. that they understand like my employee isn't weak willed you know this isn't a this isn't a personality defect this is survival stress in the physiology showing up in this way this is unresolved trauma and that you know what is more compassionate than that to to understand the suffering of our fellow human beings is the fundamental basis of compassion yeah. so but we you know it's not just enough to say oh i understand everyone suffers you really have to understand what's really happening in the system and then when you understand that you can respond more appropriately create more safety in the workplace mm-hmm. you know maybe create more opportunities for rest little breaks in the day you know it's okay to take 15 minutes to just go for a walk you know create environments that have more plants in them Mm-hmm. Things that human systems need, you know, that create a better oxygen, more natural light, right. more fresh air, right? You know, all of these things could could be transformed, but it does require the, you know, the so-called bosses to uh, mm-hmm. to get on board with this stuff, and and for also for the employees to understand that it, it's something they need, you know, fundamentally. Yep. Um. So finally, finally, one last question for you. Um. On, on the topic of trauma, um, there's a couple more questions I'm going to ask, but on the topic of, uh, well, just everything we've spoken about today, um, you know, one mm. of the motivations for this podcast is this great resignation trend that we're seeing in the workforce. So what do you think some of the main drivers of this trend are? Well, I, you know, I was saying earlier how there can be, yeah, like a big thing that sort of spikes the system and it can't do it anymore. Well, yeah. And look at the last two years. Um, so I think what's happening is that's happened for a lot of people and they're recognizing, you know what, I, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep living this way. And I think that is part of a, a large kind of awakening that is going on right now here, um, where people are just starting to recognize, you know, maybe I don't want to f- always feel awful, you know? mm-hmm. um, moving more towards authenticity that's a tremendous part of healing. You know, when, like I was saying before, our personalities are largely shaped around unresolved trauma. As we heal our trauma or come to face it, we start to recognize maybe more about what we authentically want, what our authentic desires are, Mm -hmm. who we authentically are. And I, it sounds like what's happening is more and more people are starting to wake up to that and realize, well, you know what, maybe I don't really want this. Yeah. You know, maybe I don't really need to achieve at this level and need all these things. Maybe it's more important that I have more time with my family and connection with my fellow humans. And and that is a trend that I think will and pray will will increase because it is exactly what's needed. I think if we're going to make it as a species, you know, it's it's time to recognize that the way we've been living is not sustainable. Yeah. On every level for the planet and for our own physiology. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm really encouraged by this trend. Um, I think I think most of it is coming with this younger generation, which I I love. I love that uh, they're they're calling it out finally that, you know, there's been this way of life, this dedication to career that it comes first. And um, I, I feel super encouraged by their, Hey, you know, this isn't going to work out for us anymore. So we're going to, we're going right. to change the game now. That's right. All right. So for people that want to follow you or your wife, Irene's work, where can they find out more about you both? And also I'd love to give you the opportunity to talk about the smart body, smart mind program. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. 
So for myself, unfortunately, I, I can't, I don't have room to work with anybody. My, my practice is totally full and my wait list is so long that it's closed. Um, so what people can do, and this is what I recommend anybody who's listening to this and they, you're feeling a little perked up, right? You're like, oh, this maybe applies to me, you know, um, is to get into Irene's online program. So I, my wife, Irene, was in private practice as well. And she realized after a couple of years, there's no way to meet the demand. Mm-hmm. There are not enough of us skilled practitioners to meet the demand. And she felt like she couldn't help enough people doing one-on-one work. Mm-hmm. And so she's also a visionary and an entrepreneur and, you know, a high power businesswoman in her own right. Um, thankfully, you know, she's, she had her own functional freeze. She had to work through mm-hmm. in, in her own trauma work, you know, in creating this kind of online world of trauma healing resources. So yeah, yeah smart body, smart mind is our 12 week intensive program that we run once a year. Okay. It registration opens up in uh, spring. So it'll start in March okay. and registration, I believe opens up like around mid February. And this is, you know, if someone really wants to get into this work and, and really change their life, then I would say that is the best way to go. It's not always going to be enough all on its own. Many people start with the online program and then maybe find a practitioner to work with one-on-one, but for many people it is enough. Okay. And there's also um, a shorter program called the 21-Day Nervous System Tune-Up. Um, that is something someone could do before starting Smart Body, Smart Mind if they want to you know, get a taste for the work and the education and the understandings um, without such an you know, investment. It's a much lower cost program and it runs all the time. 20, you know, it's evergreen. Okay. So all of that's on my wife's website, irenelion.com. Also, definitely check out her YouTube channel, which is a huge resource mm-hmm. for you know, hundreds and hundreds of videos of education. And also there's some practical neurosensory exercises, we call them, ways of working with the physiology. It's all there. It's all available. And what I encourage people to understand going into this, it kind of requires a mindset shift from what we've been told and taught about how healing works. This isn't about do this exercise for this symptom mm-hmm. and then everything will be okay. Don't, you know, it's not about take pill A for problem B. Mm-hmm. This is about learning about yourself and fundamentally changing the entire way that you relate to yourself. The entire way in that you relate to others and understand yourself and others and how you work with your own human system. And like I said, this can lead to a total transformation of the self. If it works, that's what happens. The person changes on very deep levels and they experience great healing and they experience lots of symptom relief. But on the way, you know, there's a lot of confronting hard stuff and a person has to understand that, you know, it's not, um, you know, just mindfulness work or repeat this mantra or mm-hmm. retrain your brain. It's get into the, get into the basement, you yeah. know, get into the stuff that your system's been holding often for decades. So if someone wants to get into that, that's the best way. Go to her site you know, check out the 21 day tune up. If you resonate with this, join us for smart body, smart mind in the spring. Um, and please, yeah, just start, start in some way. Also, you can go to my website. If you just want to read my articles, I've got a bunch of articles there. I've got, you know, like I said, I also do sound healing. So I've got a sound healing album, Mm -hmm. um, that you can link to from my website. If you 
want to use some of those kind of resources. Uh, but yeah, the, really the meat and potatoes of this work is to get into one of Irene's online programs. Incredible. Well, Seth, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you for doing the work that you do to help people in their own healing. And thank you so much for being a guest today on the show. Oh, very happy to, Adam. Really, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Seth Lyon is a somatic trauma specialist with a private practice in Vancouver, B.C. He's trained extensively in somatic experiencing, the groundbreaking work of Dr. Peter Levine, which works to restore goodness and vitality at the core level where trauma takes root, the nervous system. Seth is also trained in an offshoot of SE called somatic practice, a form of touch work developed by Kathy Kane, which is especially effective for working with early developmental and complex trauma. Seth combines this intricate nervous system and stress physiology work with energy work, elements of shamanism and sound healing. At the core of his practice is the knowledge that all people have the capacity to heal and that this capacity has at its foundation in understanding how to first listen to and then work with each unique human system. Seth's wife, Irene, has put together a 12-week online program called Smart Body, Smart Mind that teaches you how to become your own medicine. You can find out more about Seth on our website, eiqmediallc.com slash the change, as well as the links he mentioned earlier. Our theme song and sound engineering was provided by Shane Sufridi. You can listen to more of Shane's music at www.shanesufridi.com. Music for this episode was also provided by our guest, Seth Lyon. You can listen to more of Seth's music at music.sethlyon.com. If you have a story to share about anxiety, stress, and how you manage these in your personal or professional lives, or if you want to tell us what you think about our podcast, send me an email at thechange at eiqmediallc.com. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on The Change. The Change is produced and distributed by EIQ Media, LLC. Elevate your emotional IQ with podcasts and content focused on leadership, mental health, entrepreneurship, and more.